24 people look like. Welcome to another edition of Rose City Politics, where we inform, debate, discuss, and yes, sometimes even mock municipal issues in Windsor and Essex County. Sound off during the show through our Twitter account, at RCP Windsor. Good evening and welcome to the November 21st edition of Rose City Politics. We are broadcasting live from the kitchen studios above Reno's Kitchen. As always, Rose City Politics is brought to you with the kind support of Layuna Local 625, Building Better Communities. I'm Doug Sartori and tonight's panel includes Dangerous Don Merrifield, Pat the Punisher Papadeus, and Sarah the Sellout Morris. <laughs> She gone. <laughs> Tonight's show includes the last segment in our series of interviews of the newly elected city councillors. Tonight we are thrilled to be interviewing the third Rose City Politics alumnus to be elected to city council, the founder of Rose City Politics, Kieran McKenzie. Um, we have a bunch of very tough questions for uh, <laughs> councillor-elect McKenzie. If you have some of your own, please tweet at the show. Uh, at RCP Windsor. After the break, we are going to um, talk about the plans for the new Windsor Public Library Central Branch. And if we have time, there's a couple of other topics hanging around that we may get to, including the uh, relatively late-breaking story of um, Councillor Reno Borland refusing to sign the Code of Conduct for City Councillors. But we uh, start by welcoming Kieran McKenzie. How are you, Kieran? Um, you know what? This is kind of surreal, to be honest, here as a guest. Uh, it's mm-hmm. not the first time I'm here on Rose City Politics as a guest. Thank you for the invitation. It could be your last. Just it might be it my last. Control. I know, Don, you and I have been going at it back and forth all day now. So um, uh, the, the councilwoman here is very thrilled to be on, on the show. That's a Facebook post reference. I missed it. A plug for Don's, <laughs> a plug for for Don's uh, misogynistic humor. Always hilarious. Yeah. I think you excluded uh, me on that. I don't remember seeing that. You've been tagged. Okay, so fire away. Let's do it. Okay, um, so <laughs> normally the first, the uh, when we've done these, we recap the campaign. Um, so I'm going to be merciful to your opponents and just kind of call <laughs> out that um, Kieran won every single poll handily. Uh, the His weakest poll, won, he won, uh, that was poll one in Ward 9 uh, by with 50.1, just squeaked out. Uh, that that majority there a very impressive campaign and that's where I would like to start um, obviously you've done this before you ran in 2014 uh, in the same ward and I want to ask you about the lessons that you learned from 2014 and what it was that you feel made you so successful in 2018 2014 is what made me successful in 2018 there's absolutely no question about it um, In 2018, I uh, was fortunate enough to be able to assemble an incredible team. Uh, One of those individuals is here this evening, Sarah Morris. Hello. Uh, Sarah, um, I've said it before, I'm going to say it publicly again. Uh, Thank you so much for all of your work. It was uh, absolutely astounding, the things that you were able to do uh, for the campaign. And it was those types of talents, Sarah Morris, Jody Percy, Jim Vandervoort, uh, Brian Hogan, who canvassed with me, uh, uh, you know, quite a bit. Uh, and, and a number of other folks who brought their time and their energy into into the campaign. In the previous campaign, in 2014, 
uh, and I think what gave me the greatest advantage not, uh, uh, coming into 2018 was I did I spent the time and I did the door knocking. I didn't have the same amount of support around me in the campaign, but I did the work um, mostly on an individual level. Jody Percy was with me in that campaign as well, and Jody is uh, one of the, if not the best campaign manager in the region. Uh, in my opinion, so and uh, you know we were uh, we we did the campaign in 2014 together and 2018 as well. Now, um, it was having those conversations. It was talking to people uh, about the things that are happening in the community and their neighborhoods. Uh, and you know, I, I found out very early in 2018, it was all the same issues. Nothing, not much. I'll just say it this way: not much had changed. It was the same concerns. It was around infrastructure. It was around. Uh, quality of life in neighborhoods. It was um, their parks, the amenities in the region, and just you know, I remember having a, I remember having the same conversation with people on the the same doorstep about the traffic problems on Sixth Concession or on Walker Road. So organizationally, our campaign um, was uh, uh, was was very solid. Was incredibly solid. So we took everything that we did in 2014, all of those good things that happened in 2014, worked our butts off, canvassed my butt off, and then added in, you know, a number of different people coming into the campaign who had incredible talents, and you see what the results were. It bears repeating that um, every single uh, newly elected councillor had run for elected office before, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it does seem to be a common thread in folk success is the experience of having been there before. So you talked about uh, some of the things, <clears throat> some of the issues that were brought up in 14 and 18. I guess if you can kind of list them, what are your going to be your top priorities yeah, right, right, out of, right out of the bat? Yeah, right at the top, it's infrastructure in Ward 9. Uh, and, and I know infrastructure, that infrastructure drum gets beaten over and over again it's in a every single ward. everywhere, though. But it is. And, and the thing about Ward 9 that makes it unique and really important is Ward 9 is the part of the city that has seen a significant amount of investment and growth over the last number of decades, not just a few years. You're talking about almost some of the original subdivisions of the city of Windsor mm -hmm. are in Ward 9, and there's a number of them that have happened over and spread out across decades. You can see literally decades of um, problematic planning mm -hmm. that, have, that have happened over the years, and they've created very significant infrastructure deficits on their own, and then service gaps that, that exist as a result of not growing uh, effectively, in my opinion. And you see, the, so there's different manifestations of it in the various different neighborhoods. There's about six or seven, I would say, distinct neighborhoods that are in Ward 9. Um, and uh, they all have, uh, globally speaking, it's this problem of infrastructure and sustainable urban development that manifests itself individually in different ways in different neighborhoods. So um, it really does begin... Uh, and almost end with infrastructure. There's other, and if you want to talk about social capital infrastructure, this is I talked a lot about a library community center in Ward 9. Um, that's also, I, I put that into the infrastructure basket as well. Um, there's been a significant amount of growth out in that part of the city. It is uh, the only ward uh, in the city of Windsor that does not have a community center or a library. And again, I think that that just speaks to some mistakes. Just be really honest about that, mistakes that, were, that have been made uh, historically, and that are in some respects ongoing with respect to planning and investment. So, are the people on Bing going to get rid of their heritage ditches, or are well, they going to get I to mean, keep those? That's a that's that's a that's a great question, and the answer, you know, and I, I've, I've I've dealt with that question a thousand times. Mm -hmm. The answer is, 
I want to. I want those ditches gone. But the city has a system in place where if you want to fill in your ditch and get the get that in, there's a there's an amortization process that you go through with the city where you're going to pay for that out of pocket. And to me, I look at that as like that's basic infrastructure. You're paying for sewers. And by the way, and, and, and I'm going to articulate this when I have the opportunity, the appropriate people in the administration, that system, that system to me is uh, is the city effectively double dipping. Because what happens when you ask individual residents to pay for basic infrastructure, the assessment value of that home, and you can speak to this, Don, mm-hmm. the assessment value of that home is going to go up because there's better services that are being provided to that. So the city is going to get paid and paid back for that infrastructure investment. And they're asking the resident to pay for it up front. So that's getting paid twice at, from the city's perspective. Um, I think it's unfair. Uh, it, so we're asking individual residents to pay for the mistakes, not only to pay for the mistakes of the past, but you're actually profiting <laughs> not that I wanna, off of those mistakes. Not that I want to argue with you, but the counter argument to that would be that um, developers would have paid for that infrastructure uh, when homes were built with sewers and, and whatnot. So, mm-hmm. so these folks purchased a home at a lower price point than a home that had those services, and somebody's got to pay. And it, I, I understand where you're coming from, but if, if I purchased a home that had sewer services, then I paid for that when I purchased it. Okay, sure. those developments should never have been allowed to proceed under those circumstances. And this is where you get into the Ponzi scheme of planning and development and and frankly, I hate to use it because it becomes in some respects a bit of a dirty word that has its own connotations, but it's sprawl. We've allowed for unadulterated sprawl without proper investment to happen for decades in this community and now you're going back and you talk about Bing Road. These are people who are on the middle to lower income uh, spectrum. Of, uh, of of income within our community, and you're asking them to pay for storm sewers. Give me a break. So I want to I want to tie this to an issue that is um, not in your ward, but uh, it's been in the news lately, and that's um, the, uh, the parking issue at the mosque mm-hmm. um, and uh, all of the infrastructure issues in that stretch of Dominion. And um, I want to ask you about that in relation to what we just talked about in terms of infrastructure and the development of Ward Nine. Um, is there a hot spot where you see risk for for Ward Nine? Is there are, are there areas of Ward Nine that you think are going to develop those kind of problems? And if so, what can you do about it now? So I don't know that there's a hot spot, one particular hot spot. I can I can point to six or seven different locations where I think we need to have immediate immediate issues or, or immediate immediate investments to address the issues that are that are ongoing. Six concession, Howard Avenue, the stretch from South Cameron. You know, and it stretches all the way through Ward One, by the way, all the way up to the, all the way up to Highway Three. Uh, Howard Avenue is a road that has seen a significant amount of development uh, through that southern, southern stretch, if you will, for again for decades. Homes have been built on both east and west of Howard Howard Avenue, all along that stretch. It's the same road that it was before any of that development occurred. So, is there a hot spot? I don't know that that's a hot spot. That's a big long stretch of road. Walker Road is another example. And then we also have the, uh, the other thing to consider about Ward 9 that I think is really interesting from a, a land use and a development standpoint is the, uh, is the rural section. We are, we're, when I say we, I talk about Ward 9 and the residents of Ward 9. This ward is the ward that has the highest amount of undeveloped land um, that is all slated for where this is where the growth is going to occur in the future. So you, we talk about infrastructure investments and infrastructure deficits in Ward 9. They're significant already. This is where the city wants to grow. And I, unless, so now we're talking, if you want to build, build out the sandwich south development, 
We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars of investment in infrastructure just to get caught up to the point where we could be accepted, where it would be acceptable for the people that are living there now. Set aside the requirements that we will need to uh, and the investments that we'll need to make if we want to build upwards of 7,000 fully detached units out in the middle of nowhere. It's, but you can just have the main line run right into that ditch. It'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's been the plan, right? Um, so besides infrastructure then, um, and, and obviously uh, it's, it's, it's one of those things that's, that, uh, you know, it's, it's, this is like the, the sitcom joke about municipal affairs is that this is the guy who's passionate about infrastructure. But there was a lot of passion in what you had to say there. Um, but I, I want to ask, aside from um, developing the infrastructure, the community, what do you see as your priorities? Well, um one of the things that's, and again, I'll make it, this, it, it again, there's, there's a ward story here, uh, but there's a big community story here as well. And it's uh, poverty, it's uh, homelessness, it's crime, it's uh, addiction and mental health. And we look at that issue. A lot of people in this community look at that issue as an issue that only, it, that is, that's a downtown issue. I can tell you it's not a downtown issue. And it's not a down. And, I, and I've had this discussion with so many residents in Ward Nine about crime. There has been a significant increase in crime in Ward Nine, the South Windsor, the east part of South Windsor, but South Windsor nonetheless. People don't think about the uh, that you know that part of the city who don't live in you know in South Windsor and the east part of South Windsor. They don't think of it as a place where there's crime occurring. I can tell you for a fact that there's crime occurring. And if you look at sp- uh, police statistics, there's been a significant increase particularly in property crime um uh, but even in violent crime as well that is that is that is occurring out in that part of the city and um in my mind and in the in in the opinion of many people who live out there it's connected to these issues of homelessness and drug and drug use and addiction um people are breaking into people's cars and into their garages to get some you know petty chain loose and and to to fund uh to fund their addictions and it's uh it's sad and it's happening out there and this is why it's really important for when we continue to have these discussions and they're going to they're going to not only maybe continues the wrong word i think it's better to say start to have these discussions in this community about how we're going to deal with addiction mental health um uh homelessness affordable housing um that we recognize that it's not a core issue solely this is where we see the most visible manifestation of it. It's happening in other parts of the city. There's uh, real consequences that are that are happening uh, and affecting people's quality of life in all across the city. And we need to look at it in that way. And we need to look at it from a, through a different lens, other than just the pure law enforcement pers- perspective. It's a public health issue, uh, and I'm hoping that we can start to have this discussion in that context moving forward. Okay, I want to uh, I want to ask you some follow-up questions on that. Um, I, I happen to agree with you. I think that is the biggest issue facing the city. We have um, average incomes in Windsor are getting lower. Mm-hmm. We have increasing pockets of concentrated poverty and not just in the core, um, but, they, but especially in the core. Um, and yet we have... Uh, we are experiencing economic growth in this region. Um, we have uh, relatively low unemployment. We've enjoyed relatively low unemployment for years. And what that indicates to me is that um, a major part of the problem in this community is growing inequality. And 
I, I realize that addressing income inequality is not a um, necessarily a municipal file. However, investment choices can minimize or exacerbate income inequality. Mm -hmm. So how, as a suburban counselor, do you reconcile, and maybe you don't see them as conflicting, but how do you reconcile the conflicting priorities of the need to mitigate poverty, which is primarily concentrated in the core, um, with the, the need to represent your residents and get your residents the infrastructure investment they need? So um, that's, a, that's a really good question. It's a complex question. And, and you're right. It, I mean, the, the answers to those questions are embedded in, they're multi-jurisdictional. From, uh, so I'll just, I'll just, I'm going to whittle this down to something I think that the municipalities can do uh, to, to have some immediate impacts and, and set aside the, the discussion that we just had around um, looking at the, the opioid epidemic uh, as a public health issue, because I think that there's ways to mitigate and create greater equality if we have better services for people who are in those uh, who are suffering from addiction and mental health issues. Uh, I'll, I'll start with public transit. So public transit is a way, is one of the things and one of the, one of the tools that municipalities have where they can, uh, and a specific program that it delivers to its resident, residents where it can actually have an impact in terms of job creation. Just be by making thing, uh, making jobs available to people that otherwise may not be available to them. So if you are able to get from one place to the uh, to another, so let's say you are you are living in the core, um, but there's a there's a job out there for you. Let's say in the um, Walker Road shopping district, commercial area. There's a lot of jobs out there. Um, the bus service is atrocious. It just is. So you can't get out there. So that job really isn't available to you, especially, to, and those are, let's, let's face it, where, with the jobs that I'm talking about, they aren't at the high end of the income spectrum. Uh, they're, they're in the middle to low. They're retail, they're retail jobs. They're, they're service sector jobs for the most part, but they're jobs. They're jobs that could be available to people who otherwise, who, if it was reasonable for them to be able to get to and from those, uh, the, those places from a logistics standpoint, they might do it. Um, so I think just, just as, as one, by the way, what can we do at the municipal level? Let's improve our public transit system. Uh, also, I, I mean, out in that part of the city, people think that they're, they're, you know, ridership's low, so no one wants to take the bus. Ridership's low because the service is not so good. And there's some other barriers as well in terms of the routes themselves. Uh, it's hard to get to obvious destinations like St. Clair College or the University of Windsor, as a for example. And, um, you know, Ward 9, there's a lot of families. A lot of families, a lot of young families, and a lot of families who have children who are in that age range um, that uh, are, uh, you know, that, you know, they need to get places. They need to get to the part-time job. They need to get to, uh, to, to school. And they don't have those same opportunities or uh, sometimes there's a third car that's purchased for the family because, again, the public transit system uh, just isn't meeting their needs. So, the, you know, just one area. Again, really complex question. Mm -hmm. I'm just giving you one, one program I think we can do. That can address some of that, but uh, yeah. That, actually, that question uh, was uh, one that also appeared uh, on our RCP uh, Facebook page uh, when we were saying that you're going to be on the show tonight, and that was a question that was, uh, you know, with so much expansion and growth, will there be improvements to the bus service, particularly in this ward? So I guess as a follow-up to that, what can a city councillor do um, when, you know, I'm going to talk specifically about transit. I mean, it's complex, as you mentioned, but let's, I mean, let's just talk about the practical sort of, okay, here you are, um, you know there are issues, 
you have some ideas, you know that service has to improve. How do you stick handle your way through whatever the um, process is? And what does that process look like other than public advocacy um, now that you're on council? Where, you know, where do you go from being you know, an advocate and one that knew the issues to now being at the table and making something happen? It's a, it's a really good question. I've given a lot of thought to that, Pat. Um, it's To me, the one thing that I can offer, I'm not an expert in creating a public transit system. I'm not an expert in building roads, sewers, and any of that. What I am an expert in is Ward 9. What the, what the people of Ward, because I've spoken to thousands of them. So, and it's, it was, there was a comment I made in the, during the campaign. I kind of regretted saying it the instant I said it. Um, but and it made it into the media. I said, uh, nobody knows Ward 9 better than me. And, I, I noted that. Yeah. Comment. So, yeah. you know what? And I'm going I'm to double down on that. That's true. <laughs> it's true because I've gone to so many of those doors. There's not a single person in this city who's spoken to more people directly at their homes than I have in that ward. So what I can offer with respect to advocacy is I know where a lot of people live who might take the bus to certain locations. I might be able to offer something with respect to sort of the, the, the reworking or, or reworking of some of the bus routes as a for example, because I know that there's certain pockets where there's kids that go to Kennedy High School as a for example, who their parents drive them every day because they can't, they don't feel comfortable with them getting to the, where, you know, the bus route, the public transit system, uh, the, what, the way the public transit system is set up for them. And I have some ideas about how we can better align the, the bus routes themselves with respect to the riders that are potentially out there because I have some sense of where these riders live right now. So that's one thing. And then there's some other issues. So there's some other barriers to the public transit system. Uh, some of it's happening already. Um, bus, things as simple as bus shelters, bus shelters or safe bus stops in places where you would have riders that would use it, use the bus if it was, if they were able to wait for the bus, not standing in the rain as a, for example, or standing uh, at a bus stop that wasn't right up against one of the busiest streets in the city of Windsor with no proper curb just a soft shoulder and you're expected to stand there with cars whizzing by you literally you could feel the breeze by your that knees. gravel behind devonwood on the side but, of the road that'll know, stop any that's bus exactly what i'm saying don't worry like, about kids you'll be fine right mind would wait for a bus there and i had so many parents tell me i would uh, my kid would be on the bus every single day if that bus stop at the corner of provincial and sixth concession was safe it's simple things like that. And, you know, so... It was ridiculous they even built that something well, there, but that's another sure. topic. And, and the, you're <laughs> right. That is another topic. But the point being is these are the kinds of things that me now as, you know, going from advocate to counselor, I know these things. I know these things about the ward, and these are the issues that when it's appropriate, and I respect all of the professionals that we have working for us in the administration, but they don't have the opportunity that I do to go out and have these conversations with people at the, at, 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 on the, just on the sheer volume that I did. So this is where I think the, you know, the advocacy is, the advocacy comes from having those conversations and it's authentic. Now for the people of Ward 9, uh, can they rest well knowing that you're not going to be knocking on their door anymore and bothering them? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but here's the thing is like, I promise I'm going to go back and be oh, knocking on their doors again. And so, well, because there's uh, some of these issues I realize, uh, as a, for example, the bus stop, just go back to that. Like 
I'm going to need to be able to demonstrate, or the, uh, the, the Karen Avenue crosswalk. This is yeah. a really good one. This one's going to be coming up soon. We need a, we need a pedestrian crosswalk at the corner of Cabana and Karen. Uh, and there's already been a petition done. We're going to do another petition. I'm going to go back into that neighborhood. I'm going to talk to all of those folks. We're going to gather those signatures because when the time comes to bring the issue before council, there's going to be a clear, a very clear expression from the people in the neighborhood, not just young people, because the, the, this issue of walkability spans the age spectrum and sp- as frankly spans the um uh the you know the, the physical abilities that people might have you could be a fully able-bodied person i defy you to walk across the street at karen and cabana right now <laughs> and get across safely so i'm going to want to be able to demonstrate that there's consensus around these issues and the only way to do that is actually physically go back and say listen we talked about this i need you to sign this so that we can say it's not just me it's all of us um, I'm going to ask, uh, take it in a different direction, unless you have something more that's ward specific. Um, I, um, you know, it occurred to me, uh, we've had, uh, the two other, uh, elected and uh, newly elected counselors on the show. Um, and it occurred to me, you know, we still have a council that, uh, is, you know, nine men, one woman. Um, and I, and it occurred to me, you know, what kind of questions would we ask if we did have, you know, a woman elected and how's and, your daughter and, doing Karen? Well, she's doing great. She is. Uh, Liv is uh, Liv has grown tremendously through the campaign process. I'm so proud of her. So that's actually where I'm going with this question, because I know that you're a parent of a young child. And I'm actually going to talk a little bit about um, a couple things in terms of, you know, the role of a I want to talk about uh, at some point, you know, we're going to be this council is going to be dealing with uh, this outgoing council in some ways is going to be talking about compensation and and the role and the job and what it takes. Uh, But I I think that when women get elected, we ask them about uh, balance. Right. We we didn't ask the men that we don't ask the men that. And in some ways, uh, you know, it's it's not a question that comes up if, um, you know, somebody is later in life retired, um, if it's somebody who is just starting off and doesn't have sort of the responsibility of children. It sort of seems to come. And generally, we reserve those questions for women because we assume women are the primary caregivers, et cetera. So I want to flip that a little bit because I know that's not true. And I know that's not true for you. So um, if it's a fair question for people because um, uh, they're young and they're raising children, then I think it's a fair question um, for anyone. So how do you see that balance? And do you see that there are barriers to getting elected and serving uh, on council, uh, generally for younger people who um, are working and have young families, and then in particular, possibly women? So... So I, I, I really, I love that you asked that question. Thank you very much for asking me that question, Pat. Um, there are challenges. There's, there's massive, massive challenges. And, you know, for me, I, I'm a single dad. And I have, the most important person in my life is Liv. Uh, and I look for those opportunities to be with her, to be able to be her parent, to be able to be her guardian, uh, and to be able to also be her friend within all of that. And you know, the, the toughest thing through this this past seven months for me, because it's been two campaigns back to back that I've been heavily involved in, has been the time away from her. But within that, it's also given her and I think myself the opportunity. Both of us have grown through this process. Our relationship has developed through that process. She's five, um, but she's intuitive and smart enough and uh, close enough to her dad to have all kinds of trust 
and love. And she's been uh, exposed to some incredible things through these last number of months. It's been so, so hard. There's no question about it. There are real barriers. Um, I don't know what the answers are in terms of how we address those barriers because campaigns are all about community engagement. And if you want to be a good candidate and a good representative, you have to do that work. And I brought Live Out Canvassing with me sometimes, but you know, let's be realistic about what are the capacities of a five-year-old to go out and quote unquote canvas. They're, you know, they're limited. Step it up, five-year-old. It's cute. It's cute and it's fun, but you know, yeah, there's a window sure. and then that window is done and you, you're done canvassing. So are there barriers? Uh, yeah. Um, is it a, or, but I, I really kind of, there was a part of me that as challenging as it was, I loved going through it with her. And I think she got a lot out of the campaign process. You know, that's well. the campaign process. I'm just going to take it forward yeah. to, and, and that's, you know, um, you know, candidates make choices in terms of, you know, it could be argued that candidates make choices of how they're going to campaign. Some don't go to door to door. So there are, there's, you know, there's some room for suggesting that what happens during a campaign and certainly there's, you're, and I don't want to use the word entitled, um, but, you know, those are the choices of the candidate in the campaign. But once you are an elected official, because we've had this even in the last term, not even necessarily in Windsor, because we haven't, that hadn't become an issue. We know that we had it out in uh, uh, one of the uh, surrounding communities where uh, a city councillor or a municipal councillor wanted, needed to go to um, a conference and needed childcare. And there was a, an issue about childcare. I think you'll remember how that how that Sherry played Bond, out absolutely. exactly how that played out. Um, you know, just the question of I mean, there's long meetings, there's budget meetings, and mm-hmm. it's there's an expectation that the other parent is going to there that there is another parent in the sense of you know that that's childcare, etc. I mean, um, is that part of your framework going forward in in seeing you know that there are some systemic barriers or uh, limitations or challenges? Uh, for young people, in particular parents. Um, and again, I'm going to stress that in many cases, uh, it's, it's often the women, at least that's who's asked the question. So I'm wondering if, you know, um, is that something that you're going to be looking at as a city councillor saying, you know, where are those barriers now that I'm here? Mm-hmm. And will you be looking to suggest, you know, in some ways, um, how to how to rectify some of those? I like to think that I've been an advocate and an ally leading up to this point, uh, and I certainly uh, am going to continue to be. There will be. There's a certain amount of pure self-interest that's involved in all of that. There's no question. Uh, I'll say this: I know if I didn't have, because uh, I'm in a shared custody arrangement, um, so it's fifty-fifty. But if I didn't have the supports of um, uh, the people around me who are part of Liv's life, I wouldn't be able to do it. And if if there are people out there. Uh, who are thinking about running for council, you and you have children and dependents, you need supports. Otherwise, it's just, it literally is not possible. Think about just council meetings on Monday nights that sometimes run to as late as midnight or even beyond. That's an impossible scenario um, for from a child care perspective if you're one person. Um, the, uh, uh, you know, just think about how much it would cost for a babysitter mm-hmm. on a night like that. And that comes around every couple of weeks. Um, we all just, we just went through the council remuneration process on Monday. So we all know what that looks like. Um, just from a babysitter, from a child care perspective and the costs and the supports that aren't there right now for people who would have needs for it with respect to those kinds of services, not possible. So it's a significant and real barrier. 
I have two questions. Uh, yeah. One is actually, I'll, I'll segue from that one then. Uh, what did you think of the decision and on uh, council pay and the issue of, of uh, the workload and whether it's, you know, whether you want to use the terminology, but part-time and full-time and what kind of job it is? I'll, I'll just say this because, it, and it's been, it's been, it's been discussed a lot. It, it, it's an uncomfortable topic for, uh, for everyone who is in this position now as an elected official and, and I'm uncomfortable speaking about it. But uh, I have a responsibility to, to speak to it because this is the role. Um, the people of Windsor have decided that their councillors are part-time, are working part-time. And I would expect that that would be the calibration of the expectations. I don't think it is. Uh, I think that people expect their councillors to be available 24-7 uh, and expect them to embrace the work and do the work uh, with... Um, voraciousness and tenacity and I will I come to the I come to the position with uh, uh, with the intent to, to, to approach it in that in that way but in terms of you know let's just break it down by hour it's a bargain it's a bargain from I'm going to challenge perspective. you a little bit I'm going to challenge you a little bit on on um, on on you know what the people of Windsor think because mm-hmm. I actually don't know that that's what the people of Windsor think mm-hmm. um, I don't know that the people of Windsor were asked it was certainly wasn't an election issue and we haven't had a referendum uh, you know so are we going by what are the comment sections uh, at, to the Windsor Star and on whatever basis of public consultation was part of that process um, and how, how thorough and extensive was that I'm going to go so far as to say do we need to be asking the people of Windsor, whether it's a full-time or part-time job, do, should, you know, should we go back and say whether the CAO is a part-time job? Is is the uh, legal solicitor uh, for the city a part-time? We don't ask that of the people. Via survey, um, you know, yeah, by the yeah, right, exactly. Or you know, in some in cases, if we're listening to what the people of Windsor said, some suggested that maybe you know, if you really were interested in public service, you simply would volunteer your time, yeah. uh, councillor elect. Fabulous so, idea. right, um, so so I'm just going to challenge and say only because you're uh, you're about to sit around that table and this has been a criticism of mine uh, on a couple of councillors I won't name any names right now who in fact invoke that this is what the people are saying as the basis of every decision that they're going to make and while I appreciate what you've said earlier in understanding Ward 9 and when it comes to specific ward issues you know on where a crosswalk should go I think that's really important and relevant but when it comes to issues of uh, importance that have to do with rights what the principal thing to do is what you know it actually is because versus what we think it is where it actually comes down to data and facts rather than opinions and whether those opinions even count when it comes to certain issues at some point you know I hope that the issue isn't going to always be but this is what the people think because the people um, you know you're also elected to do the right thing not just what so the people with think. that I'll, I'll, I guess all I'm saying I'll say, I'm going to say two things to that number one um, there was a public process that 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 was vetted and I respect that process people had the opportunity to engage uh, I knew I, I was aware I think everybody here and yes we are all of us very um, uh, ardent council watchers and municipal political watchers so perhaps it would have just been normal that we would know what was going to be happening uh but this process was 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 conducted in a public way there was public commentary and feedback that was actively solicited and this is what that committee came up with um i think that the the individuals that served on that committee uh came to it with a a certain with with an with without an agenda with an honest 
uh, with honesty and integrity, wanting to come to a conclusion as to where they felt the community was comfortable with respect to remuneration for counsel. Whether or not they got it right, we can debate that. Um, well, sorry, sorry. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not commenting on whether they got it right. I'm going right to the heart of whether this is, you know, it's either a public consultation because we think it should be, or it's simply something, and I'm just going to even challenge whether it should have been, because, you know, do you think counsel is a full-time job is actually not a question of opinion. It's either fact or it's, a, you know what I mean? It's not, it's not an opinion. <laughs> sure. So, so why are we asking it in that sense? The, it is a democracy. Those, those positions are elected, and the people have a right to participate in that process uh, just as a, on a fundamental level. And the community, uh, the city, went out and created a process whereby the community could be engaged in that process and we ended up with what we ended up with. Mm-hmm. Do I think that it, they, it, it could have been more? Sure, of course I do, because it, it is a, one of the things that, and it's not just for my own remuneration. What it is, is I look at that, I look at whether or not by creating a certain income uh, or, uh, income level or income that people can earn in doing the job is who it becomes available to. Right. Right. So what do you get if you want to pay counselors uh, part-time wages? You get people who can afford to have a part-time job. Uh, And if we looked at the age demographic of our previous council, yes, it's come down significantly. um, But you had, you know, you have, and I think you probably would see the same across Ontario uh, in municipalities that are comparable to Windsor with the same type of remuneration. The age, the age is, the age is up there because a lot of times folks uh, who are in, um, let's call it senior, or, you know, senior aged are collecting pensions. It's a second income stream and it makes a lot of sense. And there's the time and the availability to put in, uh, to put in the work as well as uh, a second income stream that can supplement their ability to be able to sort of, you know, live, uh, live in a live a lifestyle that they've grown accustomed to over the years. Okay, we're we're way overdue for are break. We? Yeah, we are. That's uh, weird. I have another question. I do have another question. One last question before we leave. Okay, that talk. so um, leave, leave, there's leave. there's a, a couple of comments and questions from social media. I want to uh, I want to um, toss it over to our uh, social media correspondent Sarah Morris. But um, uh, leading into that, uh, one of the main platform planks that you had was mm-hmm. um, a new community center and library at Devonwood, and I yeah. think that leads in nicely to um, the question from. Uh, Twitter. All right, so this is from a uh, friend of the show, Frazier Fathers. Um, <laughs> if downtown like is getting a $39 million library, is there money for Ward 9 Community Center Library? Well, I mean, that, that'll be part of the budget deliberation process, of course. Um, uh, it's my understanding that there has been, a, that there are, a, that the, uh, the notion of a library in Ward 9 is a, uh, is a priority within the walls of City Hall. I don't want to name names there. Um, it'll be my job to advocate for that. There's no question about it. And do I think that there, and what we're talking about, just to be clear, so, you know, a, a new main branch is $39 million. I'm not talking about, and I never was talking about a $39 million investment in Ward 9. I looked at the um, uh, the Chisholm Library in, uh, in, in Ward 4 in Optimus Park. That was about a $5 million investment. I think that that is a manageable investment and an investment that's been a long time coming uh, in a part of the city where there are literally tens of thousands of people who are underserviced with respect to social infrastructure. So it's not a huge ask. It's a very reasonable ask. And, um, you know, it's my hope that certainly, uh, you know, I I don't want to make uh, promises that I can't keep, uh, but 
I'm going to be advocating for that infrastructure investment to come forward at some point before the end of the mandate. Okay, one last question from Pat, and then we're going to go to break. Okay, I asked this of the other two councillors, so uh, Councillor Lux, so um, uh, following your victory, and uh, uh, certainly a, a solid one it was, uh, I hope, I assume there was opportunity for the mayor to uh, contact you, to congratulate you. Did you have a meeting? Was it a phone conversation? How did that go? Yeah, um, so the I, I met with the mayor two days after the election, and uh, we had a very constructive uh, conversation. There's absolutely no question about it. And uh, uh, I th- and it was uh, his office, in fact, had reached out to me literally in the a.m. of, a, you know, Tuesday morning. So uh, it wasn't it wasn't Mayor Francis or sorry, Mayor Dilkins directly. It was uh, uh, it was it was his staff, but it was early in the morning. And, uh, you know, they called me. He was, I, I would argue, he was the first one uh, outside of my, my specific circle of uh, friends and supporters who, um, who acknowledged the victory. And we actually had a very nice conversation on election night as well. And we, um, uh, like I said, I, I'll, I'll just say this about that conversation. He said, uh, we, we're, going to, we're going to disagree on some things. And there's other, other, other things that we're going to have strong agreement on as well. Let's be respectful within the context of those uh, uh, of those debates, and work together uh, and constructively on the things that we can that we where we find common ground. And I'm a hundred percent on board with that um, with that approach. Thank you very much, uh, Councillor Elect McKenzie, <laughs> for joining us on this show. I'm glad you were able to find your way down here. Thanks for having me. And uh, we're going to go to break now, and we'll Stick see you on around. the other side. Yep, I will. Welcome to this week's Rose City Politics Events Calendar. Thursday, November 22nd. Botfly, Psychic Void, Hellbent, and Strange Limbs are at the Dominion House. The annual Michael vs. Prince party is at TV Lounge. Sophia Coppola's debut film, The Virgin Suicides, will be screening at Green Bean Cafe. Friday, November 23rd. Architect Colin McDonald, Concepts and Experience Lecture, is at the School of Creative Arts. Echo and the Bunnymen are at the Fillmore. Saturday, November 24th. Christmas and Craft Show is at the Canadian Transportation Museum and Heritage Village. The 45 Special with DJ AA is at Fog Lounge. Sunday, November 25th. The Spitfires go up against London Knights. We Will Not Be Erased Rally, Windsor Against Transphobia, will be at We Trans Support. The next regular city council meeting is Monday, December 3rd. Check out Rose City Politics on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to premium content on Patreon. If you'd like your event featured here, please contact us through social media. Welcome back to Rose City Politics. Uh, We are back in the kitchen studios. We are brought to you with the kind support of Lyuna Local 625. And uh, I am Doug Sartori. The panel is Sarah Morris, Pat Papadeus, and Don Merrifield. The topic this this, afternoon. second half of the show i'm working on it guys it's like 15 minutes yeah the topic on the remaining moments of the show is um this piece from the windsor star by brian cross moving forward with 39 million dollar downtown branch library board contemplates partnerships so 
The new central branch of the Windsor Public Library will cost $38.7 million, um, closer to 45 when you factor in land acquisition. Um, this is something that has to happen because the central library was recently sold to uh, the downtown mission for $3.6 million, uh, I believe. I don't have the figure right in front of me. Um, the uh, So this is approval of the plan by the library board. Of course, city council will be required to approve it as well because it is a, a significant expenditure. Um, the current building is 46 years old and uh, is too large for the needs of the Central Library. I think that pretty much um, is all the facts that we need to have to, um, to set the table. And uh, before I go to you guys with comments, I just want to... Um, I want to start off by uh, by saying I, I think that this is um, this process is what makes people cynical. Um, the 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 in camera sale of a significant public asset um, is is going to leave people with questions. Um, if you've been on social media, you've looked at the comments in the um, in. Uh, uh, Windsor Star and other uh, media outlets, you can see that cynicism is ripe, and I think are rife. And I think that the reason that that's the case is that when you have um, when you when you spring something like this on the community, you're going to breed cynicism. You're going to make people speculate about it, especially when um, it really seems. And, and I'm going to go to you, Don, uh, because I know you have a lot of expertise on um, these matters, but. Uh, it really seems to me like this is just a poor deal for Windsor. Um, and uh, uh, I want to hear what you have to say, Don. Well, the way to decide if this is a poor deal for Windsor is you put that property on the market. There's many ways of valuing a property. Uh, I can tell you that through MCAP, who does all our assessments for all our properties, uh, they have, they assessed that building at $5.5 million. That's what their current assessment is on the property. Uh, the only way, but that doesn't mean anything. And, you know, the comments that have come back, and, and I don't want to pick on the mission, but comments that come back from the mission, well, we had two appraisals done, and they were, you know, well within certain parameters, and everybody got a fair deal. A property, no matter what it appraises at, or whatever the case may be, is worth whatever someone is willing to pay for it. And the only way to find that out is to put the market out, put the pro any property out on the market and send it out there and look, you know, look at what you get in return for it. I think that's a really important point. Um, seems to me that uh, a policy of having a consistently open process for the disposal of property by um, municipalities and other public entities is the only way to um, eliminate some concerns about the value of the deals and and reduce the cynicism around it. Well, it's not it, the value that'll solve that problem instantly and. First of all, I'd like to disclose oh, 12 years ago, uh, Eddie Francis put in, changed the rule where any excess property or properties being sold by the, the municipality had to put on the MLS system. You had to hire a real estate agent. They'd put a tender out every year. I used to do it. I was the guy doing it for small residential properties like those little empty lots you see. So I know what the process is. I went through it for two years. He changed that. I don't know why he changed it. I don't remember what the deal was. Uh, and that's when this all started. And it doesn't matter who buys the property. Uh, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, you know, the mission bought it. We need it for X, Y, and Z. Okay, fine. But let's just say Fari bought it. How many people be losing their mind right now who would be completely, who are supporting the idea right now? 
the only reason, reasonable and responsible thing to do is to market any property on the open market. If it doesn't sell then, then you can kind of work a deal with a certain individual at what would be considered below market value. Uh, so, I mean, that's the first problem. I guess if we want to go further with this is, A, do we need another library? Right. Uh, the life expectancy of these buildings, if they're saying is only 45 years, is ridiculous. Because if you're building a commercial property, especially one like that, uh, like the one we have in the current library now, the life expectancy of that building can be almost indefinite if you you know, keep uh, servicing what needs to be serviced. We had this conversation when we were talking about the new city hall. The reason we built the new city hall is the old city hall was going to cost, I think it was like $18 million to fix, and we were going to build a new one for 20 some odd million. That turned out to be a joke. But if you can refurbish city hall, the old city hall, for less than $20 million, there's no way you can tell me we can't fix any problems on the current library for less than what's going to amount to $45 million. Right, and that's where I want to go. Um, I w- I it's the value of the property may well be the 3.6 or 3.7. Sure, it could it be, may yeah. well be that that's the market value and I don't need to dispute that. And I don't care to dispute it, but the value to us, the community, the residents of Windsor, you have to factor in the cost of replacing it. Sure. Um, that $45 million less the three, whatever. Um, so, so something around 40 million and change that it's going to cost us to, to build and construct a new library is, is money, whatever the delta between the cost of, of renovating the existing central library to the needs of the 21st century and the cost of building new, is money that could be spent on some of those infrastructure projects elsewhere in the community that we were talking about earlier in the show. I think you can make the argument that we are watching neighborhoods become more and more impoverished of infrastructure that is necessary to the community. Um, and, and at the same time, we continually build these type of mega projects in, in, you know, a few blocks of downtown. This is, this is the same, this is going to be within a couple of blocks of Adventure Bay. Sure it is. And the new library as part of the proposal, as you read, was they're open for partners. So the take on the current libraries is too big. Well, why aren't we looking for potential partners there? Maybe we could have done the mission there still. Maybe there would have been. A, I mean, if you're going to look for potential partners for the new library, why didn't we look at it for the old library? It, it's it strikes me that um, there is a bit of a manufactured crisis here, um, in that the uh, the reason that the, the the folks at the Windsor Public Library were so keen to get out of that building is that they couldn't afford to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the surely the view of the city is wider than um, that narrow view of what the library budget is and what it's costing them to maintain that square footage. The, ultimately, the city owns that 100,000 square foot building. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it seems to me that um, we didn't try very hard to find alternate solutions for how to right-size a central library um, and make use of the other 20, 25,000 square feet. Well, not to nerd out as a real estate agent, but if the current library is 100 thousand square feet and we're looking at spending basically 35 million to build a new one construction costs for commercial buildings uh, like high rises that are basically about 350 dollars a square foot plus your land purchase we're paying the same amount to, to build the same amount of space if we want to now if we're paying 300 or 35 or 36 million to build something half the size we're paying too much and we all know that that number is going to go up. This is how they sell it to the community. It's only going to cost X number of dollars, but it was just like City Hall. That's how it gets approved. And then three years later when we do it, it's you know 50% higher in the cost. You want to chime in on this one, Pat? 
No, I, I think you guys have hit it. I think that, you know, both the, the, the issue of um, the sale of the, the current library, but in addition to, you know, this idea that we're, you know, um, you know, when I look at those numbers, I, I first of all, I'm going to go back to what people think an auditor general does or doesn't do. And in many ways, it is uh, value for money when you take a look at the um, outside one. And again, this is where... Um, before you take a look at basically saying it's going to cost $20 million to renovate, but only $40 million to build and $40 million to build, or whatever the numbers are when you sort of throw them out there and it just sort of make, doesn't make sense. To, it sounds like we're throwing good money after bad or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, but really, that's not how you do an analysis. And we, really what we need is somebody to actually put down those numbers and see what it looks like. You know, and I realize that we're talking about a public facility and publicly owned facility. But when you throw uh, numbers out that basically equal a million dollars a year for what you think the life of the building is, and you look at what a million dollars a year gets you, <laughs> yeah. as opposed to uh, investing in it now. Um, then, then you've got some real concerns with how this makes financial sense and what that looks like. You know, I think if somebody said it earlier and I sort of was looking at something, so I don't know if somebody said it on the air, but when you look at the issue of the, um, old one that we sold being too big, um, you know, that's not, that's not the worst problem. You know, the problem is when something is too small, when it's too big, there are other things that you can do, particularly when you're a public, um, you know, when you are the public, when you're a municipality and actually have probably some, some other needs. And I guess the last point that, you know, I want to make is that I do think, um, you know, the conversations that have been around other partnerships are also really important. Um, but, um, at the end of the day, um, you know, those partnerships have to drive the and and have to take into account that the city itself and the municipality needs to service its own stakeholders. And uh, that and so, you know, it's really interesting to me that there was a very clear determination that this new library needs to be. And I can't remember if it's like six blocks or something. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know where that came from. I don't know why that came from. And I, you know, you know that I'm an advocate of the downtown. And I do think that there's re there's reason to put things in the downtown core if that brings people, etc. I just don't know why, though. Um, that's the block uh, that that that's exactly the area that was said and then it's followed by dot 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 but we know there's not a, lo a lot of available land in that area you know it, it, and if you take a look at it the current library is outside of that area uh, there are stretches along University Avenue that go towards the university that are up for development according to you know what the plans are for that 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 major stretch of road which would be outside of this so I just don't know where some of these random things come from that suddenly that the place it's got to be that's how much it's going to cost we don't know where it's going to go and by the way there happens not to be a lot and then they also happen to throw in that you know the only person that actually probably has land about that size is Farhi. how do you expect not there to be some kind of like eyebrow raising at this sort of thing for sure so i just uh a couple of weeks ago um on this show i mentioned um the when i when i think that mayor dilkins is at his best um, and that is situations where um, there's a clear consensus, an opportunity for someone to show leadership. Um, Mr. Dilkins has those leadership qualities. He's more than able to fill the role of mayor in an excellent manner in those circumstances. And I say that because this instance is an example of Mayor Dilkins at his worst, in my opinion. 
Um, there's no question he's the driving force here. He is the chair of the library board. He became chair of the library board, it seems, in order to move this file forward. He is the um, mayor of the city. The, the, when Mayor Dilkins is at his worst is when um, he has an idea. And he absolutely wants his idea to be what, what the exact shape of that idea is how things have to be. This whole thing has is is moved forward at lightning speed when it just absolutely didn't have to we in some senses i feel like selling the the existing property um was was probably a feature to the mayor because it creates this crisis timeline you know now now we absolutely must do this thing on a very short timeline and yet at the same time this timeline's not that short sorry to interrupt you but what are they saying it's like 2026 right yeah as long as it's going to take to build a bridge um it it's it's it just seems to me that that all of us are smarter than any one of us all of us together as a community can can take an idea a good idea maybe and make it better um and we can push and pull and poke and we can come to the best solution and that's what that's what um public consultation is supposed to be about that's what democracy is supposed to be about and and that i think is what leadership is about is not imposing your will on a community, but eliciting the best of the community to find a solution that works for everyone. And on that, I think that um, this entire process is fatally flawed for that reason. Well, but first of all, you have to, you know, acknowledge, you know, you have to have a, a, a sort of an appreciation of the big picture of what the problems are and then genuinely want to find a solution. And this doesn't seem to be the case here. This seems to be a solution um, that um, move backwards to, in, you know, um, find the problem, frankly. Uh, and I'm sorry to be that cynical, but again, I'm going to go down to the fact that um, you, when you do have an issue and you explore all the possible um, options for that problem, then you can have some, you know, really genuine and, and, and valuable input in that. When you tell me that uh, this project this new library is going to be built like basically there. Um, I can't help but think, you know, what exactly, um, you know, came to, to lead to something like that. It is a very small area. It's not, it's not terrifically small, um, but it seems to me that, um, yeah, uh, we've seen this before. And frankly, um, and, and I'll, I can go into further examples of where you saw processes where there was really um, a desire to put things in certain places and how we see the process changed uh, in order to accommodate that. I'm not saying that that's exactly what's happened here, but you're absolutely right. He, he there was a bus. He decided to um, go in and be the driver of that bus and I think there is a clear indication of where he wants it to go. And I don't really think it has a lot to do with, you know, where a library should be and uh, what exactly the issues are that are being solved. Yeah, there's a... <clears throat> we first started hearing about this word on the street, quote-unquote, right after they talked about building New City Hall. So this didn't happen last week. This didn't happen when we heard about, you know, the mission by, buying the building. This has been planned for a long time. And I agree with you, Pat. They have the outcome already decided. Now they just need to create the backstory to make it seem like it's a you know, reasonable thing to do. They did that with Adventure Bay. They did that with City Hall. They, you know, the price kept going up. Originally, it was only going to be X number of dollars, so it made sense to build it. If this was really the out, like this didn't, like I say, this didn't happen in the last couple of years. 
if they really needed an like temporarily the library is now going to go with the new city hall so obviously there's space there why we can't just leave it there i don't know uh part of the reason for the new city hall aside from once we got people upset about the numbers well windsor should have you know kind of a centerpiece city hall every city should have this so if that was going to be the idea why didn't we just say okay instead of spending 45 million dollars on it Let's add an extra 100 square feet. Let's add another 50,000 square feet, and we'll also put the library there. There are solutions that could have been done all along the way if this process started five years ago, which it probably did. And now, but that's never considered because they just want that new shiny building. That's all this is. Somebody wants a new shiny building so you can stand next to it and say, I did this. That's all this is. That's what Adventure Bay was. That's what WFCU Center was. That's part of what the new city hall was, in my opinion, only uh so if we wanted a new library and someone down there decided we needed a new library which i completely disagree with there were solutions that were presented along the way that we just skipped over because it's not bright new shiny separate building well if we're gonna if we're gonna throw a building away every 50 years Mm -hmm. we can really start to scale back on the construction we could make these things out of friggin cardboard and tinsel you could have tents well maybe we will but uh the you know well except for this um i don't know that that's it's about uh, building monuments and legacies in the form of building but i have noticed uh sorry to be really um um maybe a little sexist on this right now but i noticed that that generally is you know the sort of like the macho way of of leaving a legacy behind uh instead of programs and uh people and connecting and services it's always about you know bricks and mortar so i'm just going to throw that out there because i've got i've got more to say on that another day (laughs) um but um you know and even look at the fact that the the question was raised about the paul martin building knowing now that you know it's probably not likely that the law school at least uh, on the basis of the um ontario government the ford's decision to um not carry forward with funding for the law school that building remains uh in a prime location in our core and actually in the in the look in the area that this new library is in theory going to go and yet when asked about it it was almost dismissed out of hand the reason given it's too big um <laughs> and yet uh, at the same time we're looking for partnerships Partner, that yeah. are part like i just don't understand how we can possibly give those very clear answers without actually knowing where it might go so Windsor Public Library slash University of Windsor Law Library sounds pretty good to me. Mm-hmm. And that takes us uh, just past nine o'clock. Yeah, I do so want to say. Yeah, I, I, I do want to say um, uh, uh, because I think that um, we should. Um, you know, uh, on Sunday, uh, Windsor lost uh, a huge uh, person in this community, Michelle Prince. Uh, very sad news for the entire community. Uh, Michelle was a very well known member of our community. She had a very public um, journey uh, in, with cancer. And I think uh, the amount of uh, um, the tremendous outpour of sympathy and sadness that has come. Um, is is uh, indicative of who she was, uh, a you know, beautiful person in and out and touched a lot of people. So our sympathies to all her loved ones. Um, there's visitation uh, tomorrow, 11 to 2, and again from 4 to 8 at Heritage Park Alliance Church. And her funeral will be on Friday at 10 a.m. at Corpus Christi Parish. Our deepest sympathies to all her loved ones. May she rest in peace. Thank you, Pat. Okay, and on that note, we will uh, conclude the show, and uh, we will see you all next week. Thanks for listening.